Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 168 of the Podium Panel Podcast. Uh, we had a few more choices last week, uh, and we have three cases today, believe it or not. Our first case is from the Illinois First, People versus Smollett. That's the Jesse Smollett case. We'll talk about that. The second case is from the Illinois Appellate Court, 3rd District, Andre, Andre versus City of Kankakee. And the third case is an interesting insurance notice case, Naperville Hotel Partners, LLC, versus Liberty Mutual Fire Insurance Company from the Illinois Third. Turning to our first case, Jesse Smollett was in court on Tuesday of last week in the Illinois Appellate Court First District, and he has some arguments. First, he was uh, that he was subject to double jeopardy because he had an agreement with the state's attorney to nolly pross his case. Second, that the special prosecutor was improperly appointed, but it was the third argument that seemed to gain the most traction with the justices. That argument is that there was a Brady violation by the special prosecutor in failing to disclose notes of interviews with the Austin Darrow brothers. The special prosecutor claimed work product and the circuit court did not conduct an in-camera inspection. In addition to asserting work product, the special prosecutor argued harmless error. Pat, tell us about this case. Thanks, Dan. And uh, I, I hope I don't have to go through the facts of this particular circumstance. I would hope that everybody is well familiar with what uh, Juicy Smollier, that famous French actor uh, described to us by Dave Chappelle, did uh, in the middle of a polar vortex uh, on a January, or had done to him, I should say, uh, and he, that he orchestrated, all, uh, that he claims to this day that he didn't do. Uh, everyone else is a liar, uh, and that it is perfectly reasonable for someone to go out to get Subway sandwiches at 2 a.m. in the middle of a polar vortex and have have Trump-supporting Chicagoans put a noose around his neck and, and, and call him uh, racial and, uh, and, and gay slurs. Because everybody knows that all of the rednecks that support Donald Trump that live in Chicago and wear MAGA hats in the middle of the polar vortex watch Empire and know who he is. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you say it like that. Just, but if I say it like that, I mean, it's, it, it, was, it was pretty obvious. I mean, as I, I, when I posted this, I linked to Dave Chappelle's bit about it. It's like, it's like yeah, we knew this was we, and this is me quoting Chappelle, says, uh, you know, we, we black folks knew that this was nonsense because this didn't add up from the beginning. Um, and it didn't. But so to make a very long story short, he enters into this, you know, he claims an agreement with the state's attorney to nolly pross the case, that is to dismiss the case. Uh, he claims there's really two parts to the double jeopardy argument, one that there was a contract and one that there was double jeopardy. Uh, the, the government comes or the special prosecutor who was later appointed based upon a motion filed by a citizen they claim that that was an improper procedure. That's their second argument. But the idea is, is that 
and Dolly Price, he was never in jeopardy. The jury wasn't impaneled. It was he, it was a and and the prosecutor, the special prosecutor, argued somewhat mockingly. Well, they've they've changed. You know, it's a different day, so it's a new version of what the argument is as to what that agreement was. It was a non-prosecution agreement. It was a diversion agreement. It was a plea agreement. It was. They've characterized all these different all these different ways. That argument didn't seem to gain very much traction. The argument that the special prosecutor was improperly appointed, it seems like it might have some merit, but it didn't seem to go very far. Most of the attention was paid on this, these notes that were taken uh, in, in, from interviews by the special prosecutor's office with uh, the Osendero brothers. These are the two fellows that are alleged to have, or I suppose the jury found them to have, been engaged by Smollett to assault him. Uh, and then he apparently paid them with a check because that's brilliant. Uh, so, I mean, this, this scheme, this scheme gets better every minute. Um, you, you always want to pay your co-conspirators with a check. That's, that's good. There's this cash stuff, Jesse. You might want to use that next time. Um, <laughs> the cash is a little harder to trace. That's the, use the cash. Anyway, uh, so they didn't turn over these notes and they say, hey, these are these are our notes. They're our impressions. They're work product. You don't get them. The the states are the uh, judge did not conduct an in-camera inspection. So no one knows what's there. No one knows if they should have been turned over, if they contain anything exculpatory or not. Um, the the uh, prosecutors have an obligation to turn over things that are exculpatory. They say it's not. But do they really have to take does the does the should the judge and does the other side really have to take their word for it? In most cases, that seems to be what the law is. That seems like a bad law. Uh, the judge should at least take a look if there's a question. Um, apparently, knowledge of these interviews that were conducted with the um, special prosecutor were, were disclosed based upon TMZ articles or, or posts from TMZ that they saw them going to and from that is the Osendero brothers going to and from the special prosecutor's office. And let's be clear who the special prosecutor is. It's Dan Webb at Winston and Strawn. Their office is on Wacker Drive downtown. It's kind of hard to miss. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of famous people going in and out of there represented by uh, Dan Webb. Uh, George Ryan comes to mind. Uh, others. Many others. Uh, but that one, I remember when they were during the George Ryan trial with it, basically the, not basically, the, uh, the media was camped out on Dearborn there. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me, camped out on Dearborn as Ryan would go in and out of there with the other former governor, who at the time was the managing partner of the firm, Jim Thompson, and also former governor, uh, who had arranged for the Winston Strawn firm to represent George Ryan, is my understanding. But anyway, so that was there was a lot of activity <laughs> in front of their offices, and there were in this circumstance as well. But it seems to me that the the justices were like. Why not just review them and find out? Maybe there's something exculpatory in there. Maybe there's not. I kind of doubt it that there's anything exculpatory. It's not like the Osendero brothers have been silent. They've talked to everybody, uh, you know, news media and so forth. I, I can't imagine they said some crazy revelation in the notes that, no, it was us. and Or, you know, we didn't do it or, you know, whatever. I, I have a hard time believing that's what's in the notes, Would be which would be the kind of thing that would have to be there in order to be relevant, which brings us to the backup argument that the, uh, um, or to be exculpatory, I mean, 
which brings us to the backup argument from the from the special prosecutor, which is there's no harm, there's no error here, there's no harm here. Right. It, it, there may be error, but there's it's harmless error. There's no prejudice here because we turned over volumes of stuff. In fact, the the the, the defense said stop, make them stop giving us stuff because they're giving us too much stuff. Well, there was two things you didn't give them: the notes from this. Uh, from these interviews, if you gave them everything else, why not give them that too? If there's really nothing there, which raises the specter of, well, you why? gave them everything else. Why not this? If there really isn't anything there, I get it. You don't think you have to. Well, then give it for an in-camera inspection. What's the harm? You know, is anybody really to be harmed by this? Uh, trust us. I, I'm not a fan of trust me as a, as a solution. Uh, that's No. Trust but verify is the expression, and that's what in-camera inspections are for. They've claimed they've claimed that they're protected by work product. Maybe they are. A judge should sort that out. It seems to me, and that's what it seemed that the um, that the uh, justices seem to be saying. We'll see what they have to say. I have to say I'm no ex. I mean, I know the general principle of Brady, but that ends my knowledge. I don't have a deep understanding of. How these how these are ferreted out? It can't possibly be that everything that is potent, you know, that state uh, that judges are conducting in camera interviews of or in camera interviews, in camera inspections of everything. That seems ridiculous. So that can't be the rule. There's got to be some middle ground or less than middle ground that that arbitrates on this issue. But it, it seems in this case, why not just have them review it? And so I think a, a, we may there may be a remand uh, for that to be done. Uh, I don't know what that would may lead to a, to a vacation of his conviction. Would they have to vacate the conviction in order to have that remand or is they, could they do a remedy short of that, send it back to the appellate, to the trial court, because it's the trial court, the circuit court that's going to conduct the inspection. Hey, circuit court, do this inspection, review these documents, and then let us know. And then we'll decide what to do with it. I mean, is that, could that happen or, or no? Would they have to vacate the conviction and we go back to square one. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I. I don't like you. I'm very limited on Brady, so I don't know. It seems like an. I mean, as I said, I think extreme. we both generally know what we learned in law school, the general proposition. But after that, I, I can't tell you the ins and outs of how it actually works. That would seem like an extreme uh, consequence, but in the interest of fairness, it is a constitutional and, right to have all of the exculpatory information. It so is. it is. You know, there may be a reason uh, for, you know, yeah, it's extreme, but so is the Constitution. Or does it go back for limited in-camera inspection, like you said, and then depending on what they find, then it's vacated? That would certainly be the most efficient way to proceed. I just don't know if that's the way it's done. I don't 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 either. I don't either. So, Dan, what are your other thoughts on this on this argument? Well, this whole whole case and and, and everything, it it reminds me of... uh, uh, that 80s or 90s <laughs> I, I came up with the thought i wish that i had jesse's goal and uh <laughs> so uh that's rick springfield by the way it is it is it's 80s yes and uh 80s and uh uh you know i think it's an interesting case like you said i it it seems very much a stretch that there's something in these notes but it does raise the specter of why were these not turned over and why are they making such a big deal out of it then why not just uh, allow for or, or suggest in camera inspection and get on with the get on with the process. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, they, the note. Apparently, these interviews are about an hour. How long could they possibly be? 
How big a burden could it be on the court? The court was offered the opportunity and declined. Right. She could have ordered, I don't know if it was he or she, anyway, the circuit court judge could have ordered it. The, the circuit court judge said, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I don't, and also, did you catch what the what the standard review is? Is, is it a de novo or is it abuse of discretion? I did. I don't think that was talked about specifically. Yeah, I don't. I and I'm not I familiar with it. what it would be. I, I I don't know. Again, this is us talking about criminal law. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if this is like a discovery situation. Like in state or in civil court, this would be an abuse of discretion type type ruling, as opposed to a in all you know the decision to conduct or not conduct an in camera inspection would seem to be a, an abuse of discretion type. Uh, standard. I don't know what the standard is in the criminal context where you're dealing with a, a constitutional right. I, I, it may be less, substantially less deferential to be. the to the circuit court considering the right that is implicated. Um, and I could understand if that were the case. I just don't know. Um, lots of issues here. Uh, this is not going to be the end of this. I have to think that uh, no matter what happens, somebody's going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um and that wouldn't be, and depending upon what happens, this won't be the first time that it, it may not be the only time, I should say, that it goes to the Illinois Supreme Court. Um, I have a suspicion that they're going to uh, going to uh, see this more than once uh, because Smollett is, do, does not seem to be giving up. And the prosecutor, the special prosecutor, has spent so much money. Uh, why not spend some more? Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> why not spend some more? Uh, but I, I see it from both perspective why they're going to fight. It's obviously, a, I, I can remember a few greater public spectacles on uh, that than, than this circumstance. Yeah. Um, and deserving of it. Because if it, were, if it had happened as described originally, that's really bad. Fortunately, it didn't happen. It, it, fortunately, it was a hoax. Right. Um, we have enough real problems in the world without making new ones, uh, and that was what the—that's the reason why people were so outraged by it—is that this didn't happen. Uh, and if it had, that would—and the fact it didn't is a good thing, um, because if it had, that would be a very bad thing, it been. Uh, and no one would be—no one would want that. So the saga continues. And uh, at one point this week, despite the number of arguments that there were, I thought this might be the only case that was actually of interest that we might know something about, uh, because you can't really not you can't not talk about this case if no. you're if you're in Chicago and it's it's on the menu. So uh, we'll we'll take our first break and come back with Andrade versus City of Kankakee. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 168. And Illinois law enforcement has no legal duty to do their job or to do it well. That is not an opinion. That is codified in Illinois statute. We've talked about it before. And here they are, 745 ILCS 10-2-202 and 745 ILCS 10-4-102. Look them up. 
and you'll be as appalled as I was when I learned that they existed. That was that argument was on full display in uh, this week in the Illinois Appellate Court Third District in Andrade versus City of Kankakee. And I remember this incident occurring too because it was a pretty shocking incident we're going to describe. Andrade was allegedly an informant for the police and was summoned to the Kankakee County Courthouse on a warrant uh, or to, te- to, to show up for court appearance. After he left the courthouse, but still on the grounds of the courthouse, he was shot and killed by someone that the plaintiff alleges law enforcement knew had made threats against his life. This is essentially one gangbanger against another, is essentially mm-hmm. the idea. It's alleged that despite knowledge of the threats and after having met with the deceased plaintiff at his home the night before he was killed, the cops apparently dropped him off at his house the night before. The the house that the, the, the bad guys weren't watching, I'm sure. Uh, because they see him they see him get dropped off. Neither the Kankakee Police Department nor the Kankakee Sheriff's Office, the latter of whom is responsible, statutorily responsible for courthouse security, provide an escort for him outside of the courthouse to his car or anywhere else. The circuit court dismissed the claims against the defendants on the basis that the local governments were immune from suit under the the reference statutes, and the circuit court denied leave to amend. It seems the complaint was not the original complaint was not well pled, and there was not a proposed amended complaint offered to the circuit court by the plaintiff. However, and I will say disturbingly, and like what happened in Green versus State, the appellate court seemed to be amenable to being offered facts and argument that counsel thinks could pass muster to allow for a remand to allow the amendment. I sure hope that doesn't become the norm. Hmm. On, the, on the other end of disturbing, at oral argument, counsel for the defendants went so far as to say that even if the shooting had occurred inside the courthouse, there might not still be liability for failing to provide security. Dan, why don't you tell us about this case? Thanks, Pat. And as, as you mentioned, these two statutes we've talked about uh, several times. It, it, it sure, sure does seem to be an egregious case. And and uh, there was a lot of talk on both sides to try to get the map and the schematics of this scene. Uh, this courthouse is in Kankakee, as you mentioned. Uh, the main entrance is on the nor- north side. On the southeast side, there's a door. And if you go out, there's a courtyard. On one side is the sheriff's office. The other side's a there's a parking, parking lot. A parking lot straight parking out. Lot. And, parking and then there's lot. The, the sheriff's office is right and next to it. Across the parking lot is the I've been the, I've been to this courthouse. I used to have a number of cases down there. Been to that courthouse a number of times. It's one of those old 19th century courthouses. There's a parking lot behind the courthouse between the courthouse and the sheriff's office or the or some law enforcement office. Yeah. And that's where and the shooting the, occurred, was in walking sh- towards that parking lot. That's where the shooting occurred. Uh, you, you mentioned in the introduction of this case that uh, the police had met with this uh, informant the night before at his house, uh, that there was credible threats that this uh, other person, the assailant, the suspect uh, who murdered him. Well, he's not the suspect. Well, he's, he's the deceased he's now. He's deceased. <laughs> but, but but, but yeah, both the both the plaintiff is dead and the person who shot, shot him, is, him dead is dead because somebody else got a gun, got to their car and got a gun and shot it. Right. And there was there was some testimony on on on, on Grady's deathbed, uh, but in any event, um, the uh, police and and, and other uh, uh, security and stuff for the courthouse uh, had been notified, as you said, that this guy was going to be there. Uh, he knew that this guy was an informant or suspected he was an informant, whatever it was. Uh, had a beef with him. He was probably knew that uh, his days were up and. You know, this reminds me much of, of the old, uh, you know, 1950s and 60s 
and 70s New York City with the five families in the, in the mafia. A lot of these types of things where guys would go to testify or would be in uh, coming out of court or, or about to testify, witnesses would be uh, uh, disappeared or eliminated. And uh, that's what happened in this case. And, and, and as you mentioned, Pat, one of, one of the uh, uh, you know, things that we've talked about extensively on these immunity uh, types of charges is, is that in some ways this is a strict immunity, as we've called it on this show before. Uh, for a lot of a lot of reasons, qualified immunities would suggest that there's a lot of exceptions to it. Uh, but as you've talked about, we had a case where the lady was raped. She called, and the police officer didn't show up uh, uh, on one of the episodes. We've had other episodes of, of egregious behavior. I think in that case, uh, there was another case where uh, the person was actually a part of the police and had uh, done substantial had raped and and uh, uh, I think murdered uh, someone. But what was surprising in this case was when the uh, county and the, and the sheriff's attorney, when she was arguing, uh, someone uh, one, of, one of the justices asked if this had happened inside the courthouse. And what she said was that it would be a closer call, uh, but that, as you mentioned in the introduction, that there might even be immunity there. Um, somehow she was suggesting that, uh, uh, you know, that there's the obligation of security doesn't extend very far. And... Uh, at all, yeah. And at one point, at she, all, at one point, she even talked about the judges and personnel in the courthouse that you know that 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 they're not uh, guarantors of their protection. And uh, I think one of the justices was a bit surprised by that, and that's when he asked the question about what if it's occurred in the courthouse. Um, as, as you mentioned, the statute provides that you don't have to do your job very well, and so I think this is. Uh, uh, just just to me, uh, and, and the argument was really uh, uh, what, what, one of the situations here was this was a, a motion uh, to uh, uh, dismiss and uh, the the uh, uh, the appellant here was saying that he wasn't allowed to amend the complaint and and uh, didn't, but, but part of the issue here was even in a motion to reconsider, even in any of the motions, even in this appellate, this appellate brief, uh, the uh, draft amended complaint was never changed. And the, and the reason that that's important, Pat, is that uh, the, the motion as pled here didn't have enough facts to get around this 402 immunity. And uh, that, that's a big hurdle. And the justices were asking if you were allowed to replead, what additional facts and circumstances, because you don't have any other information. So what would you have? What would you put in a complaint that would get around uh, and, and create an exemption to the uh, to the immunity that's offered here? So, um, and he didn't really have a good answer for why they didn't do that. All he said was the court said no, and uh, I think the justices were trying to probe a little bit to say a little pushback. You know, isn't it your responsibility to preserve the record and to kind of push back and to at least offer the trial court something? And if they don't look at it, then at least on the record. You have something to submit on appeal uh, for us to take a look at, but we can't really, as a as a court of uh, of appeals here, we can't really uh, just uh, look at something that's not here. Um, the, uh, uh, the 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 case uh, uh, it really comes down to again this control factor and and whether whether there was control. Um, 
this guy did not have a choice but to show up. He, like he said, a warrant or a subpoena. He was there to testify. Uh, you know, if, if he hadn't shown up for whatever reason, if he decided that he wasn't safe, didn't show up, then he'd be held in contempt of court. Um, and so um, the justices were asking the appellant some questions about what control means in this case. And like we said, uh, the, the appellee, when she stood up, at least her argument was that uh, it's very limited to this control, uh, that uh, once uh, once the witness was free to go, that uh, it's on him and that the uh, sheriff's office in the, in the county and the city don't owe any duty to uh, people such as him uh, coming into the courtroom. So very interesting case. A very interesting case indeed. Uh, and one that uh, um, we should keep an eye on uh, because it, it it's really kind of disturbing if if this is the law that the police can expose someone to a circumstance like this. I mean, they, why couldn't he have appeared remotely? Apparently others appeared remotely after this. Sure they did. Of course they did. Right. Because people were getting shot uh, coming to and from the courthouse. Um, they, they have to... They have to provide some, I mean, it just, it seems really incredible that the government can stand there and say, yeah, we made you show up. And yes, we disarmed you uh, in order to go into the courthouse for obvious reasons, but you don't, you know, we don't have any response. We go, you know, do, do well, enjoy. Um, but that does remind me, I was in a courthouse a couple weeks ago and I wasn't even sure it was a courthouse, except for the fact it looked like a courthouse. When I got there, and I wasn't the only lawyer that commented on this because we hadn't been to this courthouse before, there was no security. I didn't see a I didn't see a badge or a gun the whole time that I was in the courthouse. Oh. Um, when I walked in, there was no metal detector, there was no sheriff, there was nothing. Get up to the one courtroom that is in the entire county. <laughs> I asked, Where, where's the certain court? Our only courtroom is down the hall. Okay, so, all right, I found the right courtroom. I get in there. Uh, I was waiting, you know, not even Barney Fife and his one bullet that isn't even the gun. That, not, even, not even that. Uh, so you have to be of a certain age to know that one. Yep. Uh, my mother loved uh, what she called Mayberry, uh, the Andy Griffith show. Um, and, and, yeah, uh, not even Barney Fife was there. Uh, but, so, it is possible, but, yeah, I... <laughs> I just was, I was flabbergasted when I got there and I wasn't the only one uh, that uh, was a bit, I was, I wasn't sure I was in a courthouse because I've never been to a courthouse that didn't have any security. Right. I've had lax security, but never had any security. And many times we go to these small towns and I have a fair number of cases over in Indiana and in downstate Illinois, smaller counties, there's like six guys. It's, you know, it's, it's like you're trying to get into Fort Knox. Right. Not this, not this courthouse. So I was like, I was a little taken aback that that was how things were going to be done. So with that, uh, Dan, if you don't have anything else on this case, we'll no. take our next break and come back with Naperville versus Liberty Mutual. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podium and panel podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the podium and panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
Welcome back to segment three of episode 168 of the Party oh, segment of the three, Dan. I know, right? Perish the thought. Say what? <laughs> we have a third case today. In uh, an issue that the insured claims will be one of first impression in Illinois, does the time for a suit limitation provision begin to run when the loss first occurs or when it ends? Pointing to cases from outside of Illinois relating to provisions that simply state that suit must be filed within two years of the loss without specifying that the time is commenced when the loss begins or ends. The insured in Naperville Hotel Partners LLC versus Liberty Mutual Fire Insurance Company uh, before the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District argued this past week that the provision was ambiguous and that the longer time applied. In addition, the insured argued that notice was timely, that the insurers were, were stopped from asserting their suit limitation defense because it was not raised in the reservation letter and the insurer did not advise the insured of the time remaining on the limitations period, and that the circuit court erred in granting the insurer's motions to dismiss. The insurer, insured's hotel suffered water intrusion over a two-year period, but according to the insurers, did not report the loss for a 41-month period, and then filed suit more than two years after the damage began. The insurers contended that the water intrusion was not continuous, but discrete events, each of which triggered coverage and needed to be reported. This decision might be an important decision on the ever-developing areas in Illinois insurance law related to notice provisions and suit limitation clauses. Pat, with that, tell us about this case. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so a couple things. It's important that there are actually two insurers. There was there was Liberty Mutual. Who was the other carrier? I, I'm drawing a blank on who the other carrier was. But Me too. Liberty Mutual was only on the risk for like 40 some days or 30 some days of the relevant period. And then the other carrier was on the risk. Um, and they had been on the risk beforehand, Liberty, and then they, they got off the risk. And then this other carrier that name escapes me, it doesn't much matter. So there were two sets of two sets of lawyers arguing this. But their arguments were essentially the same, is that this was not a continuous loss. So the way the super limitation provision reads, or as the lawyer for the insured called it, uh, the internal limitations period. I never heard it called that before. Um, and the lawyers for the insurers pushed back on that characterization. It's just a contractual suit limitation provision. It's not a statute of internal statute of limitations. It's the suit limitation provision. Um, because otherwise the statute of limitations is 10 years. Uh, so I guess I understand where internal statute of limitations comes from, but it's it's a suit limitation period provision. And they argued that it was these were individual discrete incidents of water intrusion, whereas the uh, insured tried to argue that this occurred like continuously. And these were just the ones they listed were just examples of when it had ha when they were able to notice it and that therefore they went two years from the last of them to be able to file as opposed to the first of them because it, the way the provision reads is that it simply says from the date of the loss, two years from the date of the loss, as opposed to saying two years from the date the loss begins or two years from the date of the loss ends, this kind of a thing. And they said, well, because it says date of, it says, simply says date of loss, you have to look at either the beginning or the end. And since the end would provide a greater coverage, this provision is ambiguous, and therefore we get the longer period. That that's the argument. Um, I, I don't know if you even reached that issue, 
because the, I don't know if you even reached that issue because that presumes it's a continuous loss, not individual discrete losses. And then we also have for, you know, this notice, they failed to provide, provide timely notice and they walk through the Wolvorsi factors that we've talked about, I think before. And one of the factors is, is sophistication. And it came out during Appellant's argument or Pelley's argument. They had a lawyer and a claims advocate for at least part of this period. And, and I know who the lawyer, one of the lawyers was. It was like, well, he, I'm sure he told you to report the loss. It's a good lawyer. Um, and so I, I, I don't understand um, you know, why they didn't report. I, I really don't understand why people don't report losses. In, with this, they said, we're not sophisticated. You run a hotel. Right. How are you not sophisticated? How sophisticated do you have to be to know water's coming in the wall? Maybe we should tell our insurance company. Um, I don't know how, how sophisticated you really have to be. The, I'll contrast that with the crop decision, and I've referred to this before, where the Illinois Appellate Court, or the Illinois Supreme Court, I should say, held that an insured is supposed to know that there's an advertising injury coverage that would cover their son defaming people on Facebook in their homeowner's policy, such that, that an absence of that in a policy triggered the statute of limitations against an insurance broker, or insurance agent, rather. So that's pretty damn sophisticated to have to know that. I'm sure I would miss that. I won't speak for Dan, but I'm pretty sure he would miss that. I would. Um, I, I know I would miss it. And if that's the it doesn't get more basic than a than a person buying homeowners coverage, and that's a pretty sophisticated thing to have to know. This is a business that knows there's water coming in and knows they have property coverage. Call the insurance company uh, and call them right away. This is not complicated. Uh, so I'm hoping that this decision comes out in favor of the insurers because otherwise you're just there's a couple cases out there. Berglund is one that came up in the came up in the decision uh, came up in the argument. Berglund is a uh, the Berglund is a paintball case where the this neurologist buys a paintball center and somebody gets hit in the eye with a paintball thing, it takes out their eye and he doesn't tell the insurance company for 11 months. Well, how is he supposed to know? I don't know. He's a neurologist. He has a CGL policy. Some poor person lost their eye. Maybe that's covered. Maybe you should find that out. Neurologist, not known for being dumb. Okay. I mean, maybe not sophisticated and they know the ins and outs of insurance, but neurologist, educated, smart, you know, go call the insurance guy when someone loses their eye at your, at your facility. I, I don't think it's that complicated, but uh, but it is, as it turns out. So maybe Neighborville gets to play, Neighborville Hotel gets to play the ostrich defense and say, oh, no, I didn't know, um, even though I had lawyers and brokers and, and claims claims representatives, claims advocates, you know, call the insurance company. Dan, what are your thoughts on this case? Potentially a very important case. I agree with you, Pat. I've always, uh, we've had some cases on here before we've talked about the, the failure to notify Sometimes there's strategic reasons for it. People think their insurance is going to go up, or uh, for whatever other. It reason. is, but that's what you bought it for. Well, I know, but but that's uh, uh, you know, I and you know, in terms of sophistication here, you know, I don't know neighbor Naperville Partners. This could be somebody that's a, a franchisee for one of the you know off brands. But in any event, like I said, in this case, they had a broker. 
I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that if you're in business, you have to have commercial insurance because your lease, if you don't own the property, your your uh, your franchise franchise or to your suggestion requires you franchise to have agreement. Your, your, the person who lent you the money right. to build the building or buy the building is going to require who's got the loan. They're right. going to require it. You know, you have insurance. You have I mean, insurance. And so. You got water coming in, whatever this water is, it's unclear exactly what, what the water uh, situations were, but it's it's probably from storms. There's probably some leakage in the roof or in the ducts or something. And so... Or they could be in proximity to the river. Right. This is in Naperville, right. so it could be that too. Could be that. But in any event, like you said, I don't, I, I never understand that. And then, uh, like you said, this, uh, you know, you only get into even periods of notice if this is continuous, and again, it doesn't sound like it's continuous because a continuous would be like pollution where it's constant. And, you know, the, the theory is, is that it's always there and it's constantly doing things here. If you have water damage and then you fix it and then six months go by and there's no flooding, if it's from the river or whatever the case may be here, that's not continuous. Right. That's it's. Uh, and so I think that's that's a hurdle. Very important case uh, and, and surprising, as, as we've talked about before. And insurance, we've done Indiana cases, we've done Seventh Circuit, we've done Illinois, uh, we've touched on Wisconsin, I think, occasionally. It's always amazing that there's still cases of first impression. Insurance has been around a long time. These types of issues have been around a long time, you would think. Uh, the statutes don't change very much. This notice provision and these types of uh, laws don't change much in the insurance code. But very important case. And like you said, I think uh, and hope that, uh, that, that this court comes out for the insurers. Uh, because I think if, if this is a case that comes out the other way, I think it's going to raise some very uh, troubling issues in, of exposure for insurers. In, indeed. Um, so with that, that brings us to our COVID-19 segment. And there actually, there was a, um, I, I, there is a, um, there wasn't, did, we came across a PLA that was filed. In the uh, in the Illinois Supreme Court, right. uh, Brad, I think Brad Delat over at Perkins Coie posted about a a uh, PLA they filed on a COVID nineteen case in the Illinois Supreme Court. We'll see uh, we'll see how that works. Uh, they haven't taken any of the other ones, a couple dozen almost. We'll see if they take this one. Um, they're arguing that their situation is a bit different. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. We'll we'll find out. I have my doubts, but can't hurt to file if you're from their perspective. Yeah. Um, so with that, this week we were one and oh, Dan is 256 and a half, 57 and a half and 17. I am 253 and a half, 60 and a half and 17. The case came down is Browning versus advocate. Uh, you'll recall, this is the case where the circuit court, uh, sanctioned the uh, hospital about who was there, um, about who was their um, uh, agents. And then at trial, the court held that those people were their agents for the purposes of, for the purposes of admitting their testimony as admissions under Rule 801. Um, and then the, and then the court uh, so it admitted that testimony, and then they weren't able to, they just read excerpts from the, from the depositions. And then the, 
Um, they weren't able to cross-examine those folks for at least a period of time. There's a dispute in the court over how long that was and what the reason was for that delay. And then ultimately the case results in a $49 million judgment. So they appeal and there was a, this was about as fractured an opinion as you could get uh, between the, the majority and the dissent. Uh, as, we, as we predicted, Justice Lavin was in dissent. Uh, Justice Hyman wrote the majority joined by Justice Paczynski. Uh They found that the court erred, number one, in admitting the testimony, but that there was no prejudice uh, as a result. Whereas Justice Lavin said, of course there was prejudice in, in having them wait a week or two or three weeks to, to be able to call these witnesses. And oh, by the way, the original order was no good. And that order that, that entered the sanction was no good. And so that order should be vacated. But the majority said that that order was not specifically uh, appealed from and because it wasn't a necessary step towards the ultimate judgment, it could, it didn't merge in and could be appealed. How that opinion, I, I will just, how that order is not a necessary step in the line to the judgment, I don't know. It is specifically the order that the trial judge relied on, on entering the order that allowed them or denying the motion in limine that allowed the these snippets of testimony to be read that then led to the error that the, that the defendants are claiming it's direct. It's there's a, it's a straight line. It's a linear. Uh, if the defendants are correct, now maybe the defendants are wrong, but we could argue about the prejudice in a moment, putting that aside, how that order isn't reviewable. I don't understand. That makes, that does not make any sense to me. Um, I, what also doesn't make any sense to me is, by the way, we got this right. <laughs> we yeah. predicted what they were going to do. It doesn't mean we like it, or at least I'll speak for myself. At least I don't like it. But Justice Hyman on a couple of occasions says, well, the testimony was coming in anyway. What do you mean the testimony was coming in anyway? The testimony, they were going to testify, yes, but not in the form in which it was presented. The only way that testimony could have come in was as impeachment. Right. They could have called them adverse, and then they could have impeached them if they tried to change their testimony. But impeachment isn't evidence. No. The, the way the opinion reads is it, that evidence would have come in. No, that evidence would not have come in. Not as evidence. It would have come in as, at best as impeachment. That's different. Um, these witnesses were available. They should have been called. And to quote Justice Lavin from the... Uh, from the opinion or from the oral argument, it was a mockery of a form of trial. <laughs> and now we'll see what the Illinois Supreme Court does. Considering the size of the judgment, the frankly, the magnitude of the injury, the injury is horrible, uh, but the size of the judgment and the issue that's at play, I, I think this is one that gets granted uh, PLA. Um, I but, think so. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. I, it's uh, uh, like you said, we predicted it uh, sometimes, I think, because we're listening to the arguments and we can, you know, with some of the justices, especially, uh, we just get a better sense, I think, both of us from listening through and, and uh, preparing for the show. But uh, it's, a, it's a puzzler to me, for sure. I, I don't, uh, I, I think this is uh, going up to uh, the Supreme Court and we'll see if, I, I, like you said, I can't, I, the, the, the uh, fact that it wasn't a part of the 
when you're uh, where we're at, it, it, it seems surprising, uh, you know, and, and it, it didn't seem like from the opinion that there's anything that we didn't, we don't have, right. That was that, the, the hook for uh, that, that position. So I think this one will be an interesting one to see what the LA Supreme court does with that. If it grants PLA. Indeed. So with that, that brings us to our uh, prediction sure to go wrong this week. Uh, Smollett, I think they're going to rule on his favor on the Brady issue. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means a reversal. I, I agree with you. I don't think I, they buy the rest of the arguments, but I think they're going to agree with them on the Brady issue. Right. And, and, and uh, okay. you know, I think I think arguing harmless error, they have to, we have to see what's in the cards, right? You can't right. argue, I would have won the hand, but uh, it's harmless. Don't worry about it. I still have to <laughs> see what's on the river. Yeah. I have to see what's on the river in order right. to win, you know? <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't get it. I don't either. Um, Andrade versus city of Kankakee. I think that gets affirmed. I think affirmed. I, I hope so. Because if they, if we're going to start having situations where people get to argue in sympathetic cases, like in green, where you get to just argue what you should have put in your proposed amended complaint at oral argument. I, I, I don't know if that's that's not going to work. I don't think that that's not a good work. process. I don't think no. that's not a, that's not a good process. The practice is and should be if you're going to propose and amend it, a, 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 you're going to say you can amend something or you want to amend something. You need to provide it, provide a proposal so everybody can see what it is you think you can do. And maybe you can do it and maybe you can't. But everyone's got to be able to see it, right. um, it, it, it at the trial level and at the appellate level, especially at the appellate level. Um, and then we have Naperville versus Liberty. This is going to get affirmed, right? Easy affirmance. I think I can't imagine anything else. I think this else. is an easy affirmance. Which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you introduce this? Sure. We have a lot of uh, rules of the week. We probably have more rules of the week that are uh, in the pipeline than, than we do cases. So uh, we'll keep it at that. Uh, this is uh, uh, the first district uh, and presiding judge's appointment. Uh, what happens is that unlike the other uh, districts, as we've talked about, uh, the first district has uh, six divisions, and from time to time, they switch around the panels of four uh, justices, and uh, they uh, announce a different presiding justice. And so last week that that occurred, um, and I don't, I, I couldn't find the rule on what the timeline is, but uh, I think they, I think they sit for about eighteen months together. Is that something like something that? Like that. And so we have for. Uh, the presiding justices in the first district is James Fitzgerald Smith. First division. First division. Uh, of the first district. Nathaniel Howes Jr., Division Two. Jesse G. Reyes, Division Three. And he's a candidate for uh, the Supreme Court. He's running for yep. the, the seat against uh, Joy Cunningham. Mary uh, Rockford uh, from Division Four. Raymond Mitchell is Division Five. And Sharon Johnson is Division Six. And. Uh, like I said, that each of the, the six divisions, uh, they have four justices each, and they switch them from time to time, so you don't get into patterns where the same three just three justices or four uh, are always in the same divisions, and uh, uh, it's just a, a method of keeping it fresh and keeping it uh, uh, different. And so, in the past, Justice Hyman's been a, a presiding justice. Uh, we've had him. Uh, but it just changes. And so 
an interesting the exception way to, to that is if a case comes back to the appellate court more than once then typically right. they keep the same panel even if they have to draw them from different divisions is my understanding they'll keep the same panel that hears the case that's right um so that they i mean like there was a case i recently posted about called burn eye and it's burn eye four <laughs> it's been there four times aren't many cases like that uh and so they were um, they, I think they tried to keep the same panel together you yeah, know, for consistency. The process, or as much as they can. Yeah. Uh, Cause those justices are obviously familiar with the repeat, the repeat, uh, players, right. um, so that they can reduce the workload. So no ju- justice don't have to relearn the whole case. Um, these justices can have their memories refreshed, but this is very helpful to just, uh, that this happens knowing the operations of the appellate court. It's somewhat, it's not entire, it's not entirely opaque, but it's somewhat opaque. It's good to know what you can know about how they're organized and how it works. That's important to, to understand. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.